Welcome to the New Books Network. We're all familiar with the March of Progress image, the representation of evolution that depicts a series of ape-like creatures becoming progressively taller and more erect before finally reaching the upright human form. It is a powerful image, and Professor Gowan Dawson has been looking at its origins and its influence on the public understanding of evolution, and he's written Monkey to Man, the evolution of the March of Progress image. So welcome to you, first of all, Professor. Thank you. It's, it's a very interesting idea to write a book just on the impact that one image has had. So when was the image first created? So, so in, in a way, it's not a single image. It's more a, a pictorial motif. Um, so lots of different images, but using this um, sense of an ascent from apes who were depicted as kind of smaller and, and less erect uh, towards humans. And, and as far as I can see, the, the first version of this comes along in, in the 1860s in the mid-Victorian period in, in Britain in the frontispiece to a book by um, a, a biologist who, who was the, the a, a really a close friend and colleague of, of Charles Darwin, a, a man called Thomas Henry Huxley. And he, um, in the wake of Darwin's Origin of Species, which was published in 1859, he writes a book about human evolution. Darwin, in the origin, uh, very carefully um, avoids talking about humans. So there are one or two lines that kind of imply that his idea of evolution can be extended to humans, but he really doesn't want to go that far. Huxley is a younger man, and he's much less concerned about controversy. And so he really wades in with with this book. It's a much shorter and much cheaper book than Darwin's origin. And as its frontispiece, it has this row of primate skeletons. And and Huxley's point is very much that if you look at them together, you can see that, yes, there are differences, but the ape, so he has a a gibbon, an orangutan, a a chimpanzee, and a gorilla, and then a human skeleton, all in a line, all side-facing, that although there are differences, actually the apes are as different from each other, if not more different, than they are from the, the human. So it's very much to show that we have the same anatomy and, and that there are these kind of similarities. But because of the way that it's put together and because of new developments in the way that um, scale could be depicted, so um, previously it was very difficult to depict um, scientific uh, organisms at the same um, scale, at an accurate scale. Huxley uses a new photomechanical uh, method that enables him to do, and lo and behold, this shows this upward curve from these kind of smaller apes up to the, the to the human. So although it, it's not clear at all that Huxley intended this visual effect, it was immediately seen as showing a, a kind of transmutation from apes into humans. And lots of people got the idea that we were um, descended from gorillas or that that was Huxley's argument. So that, that's where it, it begins with a, with a kind of fairly austere wood engraving but one that has a, a really big effect and, and within the 19th century is reproduced all over the place and becomes a, a kind of symbol or an embodiment of Darwin's theory and its application to humans. So do we know if, if Darwin saw it? He must have done. 
He, he did, absolutely. So he, as a close friend of Huxley's, the publisher sent him an advanced copy. And he, um, in letters, he refers to it as the monkey book. Um, and it's quite clear that even before he's really started reading it, um, he's had a quick flick through and looked at the pictures. And he says that the, the pictures are wonderful. Um, he, he comments on, on them. He doesn't mention the, the frontispiece in, in particular, but it, it's quite clear that that would have been one that he saw. So he, he certainly kind of approved of it. Although his own copy of, of the book actually it's kept in in the Darwin collection at Cambridge University Library, and he annotates it. One of the great things about Darwin is that he wrote in his books. He can can really assess the development of his ideas, and he draws um, on one of the pages a, a kind of a branching diagram. So. This is one of the things that, that modern scientists have found most problematic with this particular image, which it is, is that it's linear. It's, it's a straight line. It seems to show evolution as this kind of progression, a transmutation from one creature into another. Whereas for modern biologists, as for Darwin, it's much more like a, a branching kind of bush-like structure. And Darwin actually draws that image uh, for himself in his own copy. So there is a sense that there was a slight critique of, of the frontispiece in, in that annotation. Yeah, uh, but it's such a powerful... I mean, it's, it's an yeah. image that tells a story, isn't it? And evolution is one of the most important stories ever told, really, by science. And, and it, it just... It, it is a brilliant simplification is, yeah. of the process. Yeah, ab- absolutely, that it has that narrative, it has that kind of potency that almost from the minute it was published in, in 1863, that everybody who saw it saw that kind of narrative, even if the narrative wasn't particularly kind of intended. And, and I begin the book, actually, with, with an instance from only a few years ago where um, the American National Public Radio Service, on their website, they want to illustrate a uh, a story about it, it's kind of slightly pre-Trump, um, but it's about a decline in Republican voters who believe in evolution. So they want uh, an emblematic image of of evolution to um, re- really capture this story, and people kind of scrolling on on the web would would immediately know what the story was about. And they use it. It's not the the Huxley original, but it's a photograph of a, a museum exhibit based on it from the 1920s of a row of skeletons ascending, primate skeletons ascending in that way. So it immediately caught that kind of sense of the narrative of evolution and it really still retains it. I think that's that's one of the things that has been most problematic for scientists is that not, not only is this image wrong, it's also really effective and really powerful. And for so many of us, including people who, when you think about it, know better, when we think of evolution and particularly the evolution of humans it's the image that comes up into our head okay well t- tell us about that exhibit in 19 i think it's 1925 wasn't it at it, yale it was uh, absolutely yeah. yeah so yale has its own natural history museum called called the peabody museum and it, it had come about in, in the 19th century but in the 1910s, it, it closes, um, and it closes for a much longer period than they intended because the First World War intervenes, and America, of, of course, enter, enters into that war. And it meant that by the time that the building was ready in 1925, you'd had um, the famous monkey trial, the trial of, of John Thomas Scopes in, in Tennessee, um, who was tried for teaching 
uh, human evolution in um, state-funded public schools. Um, and this kind of was really a, a, the, the moment that, that kind of debates about evolution between kind of religious fundamentalists and scientists really came into the public domain, not just in newspapers and magazines, but also on the radio. The radio was the kind of the big new thing here. And when the, the Peabody Museum o- reopened at the end of 1925, it felt that it had a, a definite kind of duty in order to exemplify um, the current theories of evolution and in order to do this they created a a kind of three-dimensional replica of Huxley's frontispiece so this exhibit that came right at at the end of their long exhibition showing the the kind of the evolution of um, all organisms really but it ends with this um, row of skeletons leading up to to humans and it became a, a big kind of thing in American newspapers journalists loved it one called it a bona fide history of man, but bona fide meaning the, the bones. Um, and it, it became a big thing in, in the 1920s. So really, in, it's in the 1920s in, in America, although not without contestation, that this image becomes a, a really big kind of media sensation. So, so part of my argument is that there are different versions of this image that, that become kind of significant and important at different periods of time. And, and one of those is in the 1920s, partly around the, the response to the, the scoped monkey trial and that kind of contest, I suppose, between scientists who are discovering more and more things about the way that evolution works and also religious fundamentalists, particularly in the US, who, who become very, very kind of powerful at that time. Now, the, the Yale exhibition was made from from real skeletons? Yes, absolutely. Right, so... And, and of course, these are kind of living primates. These are the the gibbon, the um, orangutan, the the chimpanzee, and the gorilla. So they they used because at, at that time there still wasn't any definite kind of fossil um, the f- fossil humans, uh, prehistoric humans that have been fully accepted as human ancestors. The, the first of those was Australopithecus, and that's only really at the end of the 1920s, the the 1930s that it becomes fully established. So what what they're what they're doing at Yale is saying, well, they, these give us a sense of what our ancestors, who weren't these obviously these living simians, these living apes, but they were ape-like ancestors who would have looked something like this. So the the professors at the time talked about these. Um, apes as being kind of um, structural ancestors, proxies of what our, our actual ancestors might might have looked like. So within a few decades, you had actual kind of bones and, and fossils of the prehistoric humans who were, who were now identified as actual human ancestors. Yeah, so they did sort of say, actually, these are proxies, not the real yeah, thing. Yeah. But 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 no one sort of, I guess the journalists, being a journalist, uh, we'd rather go for the, yeah. <laughs> the simpler story, uh, probably. Uh, absolutely. And the image, as we were saying, is that kind of simplified version with that very powerful narrative with the upward curve that is immediately identifiable and it very much kind of fed into that so as with readers of Huxley's book and people who'd seen the the image when it was reproduced kind of elsewhere visitors to the museum kind of you look at it and you immediately think ah yeah this is the 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 history of humans yeah so so just go forward to 65 yeah uh it's another jump of 40 years but there's another 
reproduction of the image at that point, isn't there? Yeah, it, and in, in a way, it's a development rather than a, a reproduction, and, and it's probably the image that, w- that we're all more familiar with. And this is a, a longer version, so it has 15 figures in it. And crucially, these are no longer skeletons. They're now artistic uh, kind of reconstructions of what our um, ancestors would have looked like. So th- this is a, a long, linear um, series of uh, beginning with kind of proto apes and then what were by that stage called hominids, the the, the ancestors of, of kind of humans, and they again have that appearance of moving from looking more ape-like, becoming taller, until they finally reach a, a, a clearly modern human who is a, a white man with, with a beard and a, and a very kind of um, enviable physique, a very chiselled kind of stomach and things. Yeah, you should probably tell us about that aspect of it, the 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 the, the skin colour, as it went in these uh, Victorian and then later reproductions, which have been described as racist for for quite good reason, really. Well, I, to 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 an extent, yes, but I, but actually, I I think that it's a lot more complicated than that because there there is the accusation that um, in these images either that um, the, the skin colour becomes whiter as they move uh, closer to, to the human who is almost invariably depicted as a white man and it's, it's gender as well as race so implying that, that, that both a, a kind of European white man um, is the highest form of, of kind of evolution. So that that's very much the the kind of the view that most people have taken, and lots of people, both creationists and uh, evolutionists, modern biologists, and this is one of the things that's interested me, that creationists and evolutionists often come together and say exactly the same things, criticizing um, this image. But actually, looking at it more closely, one of the the uh, disputes in kind of arguments about hum, human evolution is whether. Um, humans were a single species or more than one species. Different races actually were, were different species, evolved from different uh, prehistoric kind of um, ancestors. So from different types of prehistoric humans, whether that's Australopithecus or, 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 or other types, Neanderthals. Um, and actually, these images, the, or the, the kind of main ones that I've been looking at, because they tend to use just... Um, one human to represent all humans of whatever of whatever race were often kind of at the time intended as propagating an anti-racist message because they were uh, trying to oppose the views of people who had a what was called either a polygenist or a polycentric view, which is i.e. that the different races are very different from each other and that they're structurally different because they've evolved from different prehistoric species. And these were the, the views that were actually tied to much more kind of um, virulently racist views. So whilst from a present-day perspective, the, the, the positing of a, of a white man as the culmination of evolution is deeply problematic, um, at the time, actually, um, they were trying to put forward a, a message that, that was quite different. And a, and a very good example of this is that Huxley's 
um, frontispiece, the, the row of skeletons that had a single skeleton as the uh, representing all all humans, um, was the, the the book was published in Britain in in eighteen sixty three, and as was the, the habit, it was soon republished in America. But of course, this was at the time of the American Civil War, fought over precisely the issue of slavery and and the status of enslaved African Americans and and their position in in society. And actually, it was abolitionists, so the people who were really opposed to slavery in the North, who um, adopted Huxley's book because they felt that it provided a kind of riposte to people who had a pride in their race and, and also those who wanted to see different races as physiologically kind of different from each other because this said that actually, yes, we are related to apes we are kind of morphologically we we have a very close proximity but that applies equally to uh, kind of white people to to senators as it does to african americans to to slaves and that was a, a point that that was adopted by um the abolitionists and and indeed the the frontispiece was re-engraved in in america by uh, an artist who was part of a, a very famous abolitionist um um, um, family and um, the, the, they kind of promoted uh, the abolition of slavery through their artwork and I think his re-engraving of the frontispiece was very much part of that so as I say the, the assumption has been that this image is ineluctably racist but I, I think kind of whilst they're, they're, there's good reason to find problem with it, the history of the image shows that the situation is actually much more complicated now then, uh, has anyone attempted to create an image which would be more accurate? You know, to to, to do uh, human evolution in 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 a sort of graphic form uh, that would actually more closely represent what happened? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the simple answer is, is yes, and lots and lots of times, um, particularly using a, a graphic um, a method of, of scientific illustration called a cladogram, um, and this is how most modern evolutionary biologists will represent um, not just human evolution, but the evolution of, of other organisms as well. The issue is, I think, that if you want to find uh, these cladograms, and as I say, there are thousands upon thousands of them, uh, you have to go to uh, fairly arcane scientific journals. It's that in in the, the kind of the public realm, it's this image that really, really dominates. Um, and, I, and I think that is the issue, that, it, that it's not at all that there aren't other representations, and there absolutely have been all through the, the, at least the 20th century, but they just haven't caught hold in the way that this image has. And as I say, Stephen Jay Gould, the, the famous kind of Harvard bi- biologist, had a real bugbear against this image and kind of always was advising for a, a much more kind of a branching kind of image that looked like a, a kind of a bush-like family tree. Um, but, the, but they really just didn't capture the public imagination in, in the way that this image has. Yeah, it just doesn't tell the story no. quite as simply. No. no. Yeah. So, so uh, you, you've talked about creationism a bit and, yeah, the contemporary political relevance of all of this. But can you just spell out for us what misunderstandings does the image create and how do creationists use it? So let's first of all start with 
the misunderstandings. What, what, where, how does the image, in what ways does the image lead people to, 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 to false conclusions? Yeah, so, so I, I suppose the, the biggest and, and perhaps the most deleterious one is that it presents humans as the inevitable conclusion, the goal of an evolutionary process, showing that we're somehow kind of special or unique and therefore have a different relation to the natural world than kind of any other kind of species. So we always come at the end of the line as if that's the the goal, the termination of evolution, a process that's often called kind of teleology, a a goal-driven process, and that that sense of it being a march of progress, that that actually all evolution, all other species are part of a progress towards us, because we're special, we're unique, and I think kind of in our our age of uh, climate crisis, um, it's clear that that our approach to our position in relation to the natural world has, has caused all sorts of problems, and clearly this image isn't the, the main cause of that, but it has kind of propagated that sense of human inevitability and uniqueness, but also the sense that actually evolution happens in this kind of linear, straight line way that kind of one species transmutes into uh, another. I mean, there, there are all sorts of other ways of kind of thinking about how evolution operates, and, and Stephen uh, Jay Gould's famous one was punctuated equilibrium, and that would be represented in, in a very, very different way. So very few evolutionary biologists um, would see kind of the process of evolution happening in that way in which one species transmutes into another rather than kind of lots of different species going extinct and, and some uh, continuing. So, so actually in Darwin's um, Origin of Species that, that we uh, spoke about right at the very beginning, it does have one single illustration, which is a very abstract one that looks rather like a branching kind of bush. Um, and that, I, I think, it is for most um, modern scientists a, a far more accurate version of how evolution works um, than this one. And of course, going back to Huxley's um, frontispiece, that sense that, that actually humans are evolved from living simians, so evolved from gorillas or chimpanzees, rather than simply them being kind of cousins, that we have the same kind of ape-like ancestors um, far back in, in the past. So I think th- those are the main problems that, that this uh, image has, has propagated. And the creationist sort of line of attack is, this image is wrong, therefore evolution is wrong. You pretty much so, yeah. And the, the, this image, I mean, what, what, what they do is, is they overemphasize the importance of the image for modern ideas of evolution. Um, and, and, and absolutely, the, they point out the errors in it as a way of undermining evolution. And actually, the, the rather odd thing is that you've got modern scientists like Stephen Jay Gould who point out the errors. And the, these creationists kind of rather um, kind of use people like Gould to say, look, yes, this image is wrong. And as you say, therefore, the, the assumption is that, that there's something problematic with, with evolution and therefore we need a, a more kind of theistic, theistic alternative. alternative. Uh, this, this series is called The Future Of and we often get to the future right at the end. But <laughs> if, you, if you think of this debate, I mean, it's not, it is a debate in, public, in the public sphere, isn't it? Um, about evolution... Uh, even if the facts seem to be all stacked on one side, do, do you see it, the, yeah, the debate changing? I mean, are the creationists actually uh, on the front foot, uh, you know, gaining numbers? 
Uh, How is this debate evolving? Yeah, so, uh, uh, well, I mean, I think we can see with, I mean, and this is not something that I'm in any way an expert on, but but looking at the political situation in in the US at at the moment, um, certainly they're they're not on the back foot um, in terms of the the kind of the power that is wielded politically, but then also in terms of kind of debates about education and what can be um, taught, and I think the, the one of the reasons that the image um, has been so problematic to creationists is that for various reasons in the 1970s and really through into the the 80s, um, it was very important in American schools um, that the, the the 1965 version, which was published in a best-selling book that came out with Time Life, was also disseminated and given out to be put up in, in schools. It was, I suppose, a, a, a kind of a, a kind of nice and easy representation of evolution. So that was that was kind of one of the things that the creationists really picked up upon. That this what they said was a fraudulent misrepresentation was also being kind of pushed down. Kind of children's throats by having it in in all of the schools, so it's it's become an issue in debates about publication uh, public education in in North America. I mean, I, I suppose just a, as a kind of sideline from this, that that of course what, one of the ways that we see this image. <clears throat> um, um, most commonly now is in humorous depictions where it, it's often used to uh, make jokes about actually are humans evolving. And I, I noticed that, um, and in the book I, I talk about, um, I, I use the phrase Donald Trump's presidency. Um, unfortunately, it looks, well, I, um, it looks like we might have another one of those. But there was a, definitely a, a kind of an upspike in the number of uh, cartoons using this image um, for satirical purposes during uh, Trump's president, first presidency, um, which was seen as a kind of a, an adir or even a, an end point of human evolution, and we'd start going backwards there. So, so the, the the kind of the, the image has a role, I suppose, in these kind of culture wars that are that are currently kind of being fought out, particularly in North America, but but to some extent in the UK uh, as well. And and I think kind of in a way it's given a certain degree of intellectual cogency and power to creationist critics because the point that they're making, which is that it, it misrepresents evolution, is one that's being made precisely by kind of modern reputable scientists as well. So it has given them a, a, a certain agency in some of these debates. What surprised you most in doing your research? Um, so so there, there were kind of several surprises. I suppose the biggest surprise was that this was such a, a kind of iconic, well-known image and that there was almost hardly anything had ever been written about where it came from, about the artists who created it. And I I, I found that really quite perturbing, that that I had to, in a way, do the... um, the, 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 the research from the ground up. I had to go to lots of archives and um, and and really kind of find all the research myself. There weren't any kind of books, what we call secondary literature, that I could really kind of draw much from. In in terms of what what I found during the research, one one of the the things that was very surprising I found was 
that the artist who created the um, drawings of the primate skeletons for, for Huxley's frontispiece, so the first version of this, a man called Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, who, who's, uh, I mean, he, he, he was well known at the time as a natural history artist. He created um, at the Crystal Palace in, in South London, actually quite close to where I, I grew up, um, and they still stand there. In the 1850s, he created these concrete models of what uh, they thought dinosaurs looked like at, at the time, and they're absolutely fascinating. But he, he drew these images of the primates, of the gorilla and, and the human. Um, but actually, if you look at what he was saying in his own lectures, in his own publications, he was virulently um, anti-evolution, that he absolutely disagreed with Darwin and with Huxley, the man who commissioned him to create these images. And actually, in uh, kind of in his life, he got to really uh, dislike Huxley and write some really very disobliging things about him. He, the, there's a, a sense that he had to draw these images because he was commissioned and he needed the money. And one of the reasons he needed the money is that, uh, like actually a surprisingly um, large number of Victorians, he was a bigamist and he had two families who were living separately from each other and without any clear knowledge of each other. And so he had to maintain two families and had a slightly precarious living as as a freelance artist. And so he he made these drawings, um, fell out with Huxley, and then this image becomes very, very emblematic, very, very famous. And it seems that he really resents his role in it and and later in life, as I say, becomes very disobliging about Huxley, his employer, um, but also bizarrely um, takes on a real hatred about anthropoid apes and writes all this kind of very unpleasant stuff about um, gorillas and chimpanzees not deserving any place on earth, this kind of almost genocidal fury about them. So rather than the the kind of the production of these images being a rather straightforward scientific thing, they're full of these uh, kind of psychodramas, particularly with with Hawkins, um, and that that one was created by a man who really, I don't think it's going too far, hated evolution, thought that it was a preposterous idea and yet creates the image that has in many ways become the the kind of the emblematic image of, of evolution so i suppose that was one of the very big surprises and when, when i do my research i i suppose i keep my eye out for interesting stories and in many ways that's where the book began with realizing that there was this conflict between the scientist and artist there and and that it it was an interesting story from which this image had emerged. It's it's totally astonishing that the debate we're experiencing today was there in the mind of the creator of the image. Absolutely. That is is amazing. And and just on your first point, though, I mean, surely that's the dream. A lot of academics listen to this, uh, to find a topic that no one's covered, uh, a solid topic that no one's done anything on. I mean, that's the dream. It it, it was a dream, a surprise, a challenge as well. I mean, I, I... I look back and I, I probably spent the best part of a decade um, doing other things, but but mainly researching this book. And it did mean kind of, I mean, quite nice, lots of trips around the world, but also keeping an eye um, on the availability of archives. So one, one of the things is that the the image that was created in the 1960s, those who were involved in it have 
kind of only recently, um, actually, their archives have become available because they, they have reached an age where they're, they're kind of um, beginning to, to pass away. In fact, kind of, um, a, a re, we're now at a stage where almost, I think, all of the, the principal people involved have passed away. And so their archives are available. But this has really actually only been the case in the last kind of five or six years um, and so that that kind of um, enabled me to to really kind of understand things in a way that even if I were writing this book kind of ten years ago, I, I just wouldn't be able to. And I, I well remember a trip to the the archives of the Peabody Museum and a, and a very nice um, archivist opening up some drawers for me and realizing that here we had some of the original artwork, some of the original mock-ups of the the March of Progress, um, the very famous nineteen. 19- 60s version and you this kind of immediately recognizable image but you're seeing it in a brand new way and in in a drawer that that no other person really has ever looked at that was a that was a, a wonderful moment in in the research well your interest in this has uh, definitely communicated through the book so th- thank you very much for telling us all about it you're, you're welcome i'm very glad to